This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. As a father of four, Richard Greenberg he knows a thing or two about the challenges of raising kids. After 30 years of family trials and triumphs, he's written an uncompromising, entertaining, and sympathetic book for parents who are in search of a peaceful home. The new book's called Raising Children That Other People Like to Be Around, Five Common Sense Musts from a Father's Point of View. And Greenberg is pretty frank. Here's what he says. I don't like poorly behaved children, and I believe that their behavior is the responsibility of their parents. Greenberg believes that mothers and fathers can discipline their children at the same time, though, they can help them thrive as calm and respectful and independent young citizens. Here's another quote. Rules are the arms in which your children can embrace themselves. An interesting thought, isn't it? Greenberg's philosophy about raising kids and raising parents, for that matter, can be summed up with five letters, S-M-A-R-T. S is set an example, then make the rules, apply the rules, respect yourself, and finally, teach in all things. The overall goal here is to get us, as parents, to start tapping into that real deep reserve of common sense that we already have. We just maybe haven't seen it for a while. We'll start our conversation with Richard Greenberg about smart parenting and a lot of other things right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Looks them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Richard Greenberg, who is the author of Raising Children That Other People Like to Be Around, Five Common Sense Musts from a Father's Point of View. Richard, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Armin. Happy to be here. You know, I thought it was something very interesting. You and I were just chatting a little bit before we went on the air, and you mentioned one of the things that makes this book different, which is always nice, is that it's not a book about disciplining your kids. It's about disciplining yourself. Talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, I think that um, whenever my wife and I observed children who were not behaving well, we often noted that, you know, they were just being kids and that it was really up to their parents to have enough confidence to guide them toward behaving properly. So one of the things I did when I put the book together was I tried to instill in the book a system that a parent could follow in order to gain the confidence that I feel that they need to be able to be the leader in their family and with their children. 
And uh, it's really aimed at sort of giving parents confidence by looking at the resources that we all have that are our natural sort of common sense and logic, because it's very male in that sense, it's very logical, um, that help give us the strength to say no to our children or to say, this doesn't make sense to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And the first part of the book is, uh, I form the Well, book you know, Richard, before, before we get to that, I, I want to just... Uh, stop you for just a second because you said something that that brought to mind a, a question that I hear a lot in writing the stuff that I do, advice, some of it, and just general conversations. Do you think that parents are responsible for their kids' actions? Absolutely. I mean, 100%. so if a kid knocks a ball through a, somebody's window or steals a car, uh, you know, is that something that the parents should be held responsible for, or, or when do kids, when are they old enough to be responsible for their own actions? You know, if I had a kid who knocked a ball through a window and the kid was nine years old, then I would teach that child to take responsibility for that action by going to the neighbor's house. And if I went with the child, I would, if I had to, I would, and knocking on the door and apologizing to the neighbor and telling the neighbor that we would replace the window or, you know, teaching the child how to do that themselves. Right. And then there's a significant difference between that and, a, you know, a 19 or a 20-year-old who is driving at, at 19 or 20 I think your children need to have been taught to be responsible for themselves. Yeah, hopefully you, by then they know that. Yeah. Right. So if you take your 9-year-old to the next-door neighbors and you teach them that how to take responsibility, then by the time they're adults they understand that concept. So as a parent, I'm responsible for teaching my child that they need to take responsibility. But ultimately what they do is their responsibility. And you know, when they're younger it's harder for them to really um, grasp that, and that's why it's our job to teach them. And they're responsible for their behavior in my home. And that's really the essence of the book is, okay, you know, these are the rules in our house. We want you to be respectful. We want you to tell the truth. Those were my two basic rules. You know, did you have to make your bed every day? Well, I, when I was a kid, that, wasn't, that was so important it made my parents yell at me all the time. I didn't want to have to spend my time yelling at my kids, so I just didn't make that important because I knew when I got old enough to make my own bed or have friends over, I wanted my room to look neat the way it looked when the bed was made. So I didn't try and impose certain things on my children because I knew at some point in their lives those things were going to become important to them themselves, just like responsibility. Yeah, and or not, you know, I guess. Exactly. So when your kid's at school and they're not doing well, it's kind of like, you know, I can't come to school and do your work for you. This is your responsibility. You've got to carry the load for your life, and I'm going to help you carry it in smaller and smaller and smaller bundles until you're carrying much more of it than I am. And now I'm just here as your cheerleader because you're 25 years old and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is great. So That's great. So that, that's a, a very cogent explanation of the whole thing. So let's start with the – there are five – Right. Common sense musts, right. and they spell out, if you take a look at the first letter of each one, uh, the word smart. And one that comes up in, in pretty much, all, well, I guess almost every parenting book that I see, and I see an awful lot of parenting books, <laughs> is set an example. Right. How is the example that you're talking about different than the example some other people might be talking about? Well, well you know, my setting of an example takes two parts. And when I mentioned to you that there's a system that I try to give parents... So setting an example means what kind of parent do you want to be and what kind of parent raised you. And so defining who you are takes 
forces one to look backwards and say, how was I parented? What did I, what did I really like about the way my parents parented me? And what did I really dislike? And so my wife and I sat down, and we didn't, we didn't, you know, this wasn't something we did the way I've prescribed doing it as sitting down and really being conscious of it. We did it over sort of years, and we would have conversations. But the bottom line was it was like, you know, my dad was inconsistent. One minute he'd yell at me, and one minute he'd be as sweet as could be. You know, one minute he would spank me, and one minute he would be apologetic. And, by the way, he always apologized after he got angry at me, which was something else I liked a lot. And so looking at those things helped me define what kind of father I wanted to be. And then I gave my wife sort of keywords that if, if I were behaving in a manner that I didn't want to behave, that we had agreed that I wasn't going to spank my children like my father did, or I wasn't going to come home and be hot and cold, she would, you know, the key word was, was that she would call me by my father's name, and it was sort of like, that didn't mean, <laughs> hey, shut up, buddy. It meant you're doing something you don't want to do, and we're going to talk about it later, but let's not have an argument about anything right now in front of our children. I'm just telling you you're behaving in a way you didn't want to behave. Now, did you have that go in the other direction, too? Because I'm sure that she probably made just as many lapses into things that she said she would never do. Absolutely. You know, uh, I used a word that was, you're yapping. <laughs> Which, <laughs> when, when, she, you know, when she just started reminding me of the same thing three or four times, I would just go, you know, look... Uh, and when I, when I said yapping, it was an immediate, like, we, we just, she understood, I understood, and we moved on. And she was as respectful of it as I was. And that's, you know, another part of that setting an example is that whoever you're raising this child with is getting their primary, the primary example they're seeing is how you relate to each other as their parents and how you relate to the world. So when you're nice to the cashier at the gas station or nice to the person when you drop off your dry cleaning or nice to the person at the grocery store, and when you put the cart back, that's the other type of example that you're setting, which is how do you navigate the world? How do you treat other people? What is the importance of humility and gratitude? And those things are much easier to demonstrate than they are to talk about. You know, you need yeah. to be grateful. That just doesn't work. How well, do you there's, teach a child? Then know? there's a lot of stuff that's going on that parents aren't really even aware. I think that what you made a great, great point about the way that you treat somebody at the gas station. I mean, people will try to instill lessons in their children about all sorts of different things, and then they'll they'll treat a, a cashier or a waitress like she's an idiot. Exactly. Or they'll mutter things or they'll throw garbage out the window of their car or, you know, whatever it is, which, as as you would, I, I'm sure, agree, basically sets, a, sets an example that overrides anything that might have been said. Exactly. You know, it's that old do as I, uh, do as I say, not as I do. That just is pointless and useless, you know, and... And look, all of us have flaws, but the, the point is to try and keep in mind that you've got a little recording device sitting in the car with you, and everything that you're doing is being observed, and in many cases, just totally taken inside as this is how a grown-up behaves. And I think that, you know, you hit it. It's the day-to-day -day stuff. You can preach and preach and preach, but it doesn't matter if that's not the way you live it. So that's what the setting an example is about. It's really about how to how to demonstrate to them that you know how to navigate your life, that, and you're happy with the way you're navigating your life, because ultimately they want to emulate that. And that part of leadership is a part where 
we observe that children, you know, parents aren't doing that. They're they're leaving the leadership of their children to someone else, either the school teacher or they let them run wild. And it's kind of like, wait a second, you have the qualifications. You know how to make a decision that is when your child should go to bed. And you need to make that decision. It's a job, it's an obligation, and it's a responsibility. And by the way, your kid will love you more if you do that. Right. You know, Richard, we're coming up on a break really soon, but I just do want to ask you, is this a, something that you actually talk about, o- overtly talk about? I want you to pay attention to what I'm doing, or are you just doing it and then expecting that they're going to absorb that by osmosis? I'm doing it and expecting that they're going to absorb it by osmosis. Osmosis okay. being the perfect word, Armin, perfect. Well, I like to yeah. do the perfect word, you know. <laughs> Talking with Richard Greenberg, the author of Raising Children That Other People Like to Be Around, Five Common Sense Must from a Father's Point of View. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue talking with Richard, and we'll get into some of the other common sense must. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Richard Greenberg, who's the author of Raising Children That Other People Like to Be Around, Five Common Sense Musts from a Father's Point of View. We were talking about setting an example, which I think is, you could just do the entire book on setting an example. But let's talk about some of the other letters of the acronym SMART. Make the rules. Make the rules. You know, you just said the whole book could be about setting an example, and I think uh, it is the base of everything. Because when you sit down to make the rules, you look at the example you decided you want to set. And then part of that process, as I mentioned, is the deciding what your values are in the, in the way that you're going to raise your child. And so when you're making the rules, in my case, I gave you the example of having my bed made every day. In our house, that wasn't a rule. It was a suggestion, but it wasn't a rule. You didn't have to make the bed every day. You did have to tell the truth always, and you did have to treat us with respect. And you did, to some degree, uh, and this was more subtle, not act like a kid who had all the luxuries of life being provided to them uh, on a silver platter by their mother who might be a waitress or tend to take care of them. They needed to say thank you. Those were the rules for us, that our kids needed to say thank you. They needed to appreciate what we did for them. And, you know, how's, how do you make a rule for that? You just teach them how to be grateful. So when we made the rules, those drove the rules. Did we uh, say that they – well, we had a rule, no television during the week. And no television during the work week was a rule that was derived because we wanted them to pay attention to their schoolwork. That was one of the things that we had. School is important. It was a value in our family. So from set an example came make the rules, and, and those were the rules we decided on. And then applying the rules. There's no point in making rules, so the A is applying the rules. No point in making the rules unless you apply them. And applying them comes back to that issue of your being the person in charge. You know, I have an analogy that parents um, are like cab drivers. And if you got into a cab and you said to the cab driver, I'd like to go to the airport, and the driver looked at you and said, well, I don't really know how to get to the airport, but I'll really do my best to get you there. You'd be really nervous while you sat in the back <laughs> of that cab. You, yeah. You just, you know, you say, well, why, why am I in this cab? So we as parents are the drivers of the cabs that our children are in, and we need to know where we're going, and if we don't know where we're going, we need to at least pretend we know where we're going. So when it comes time to apply the rules, the rules are the things that we have decided are important in our child's life. 
And if what we've decided is important in our child's life and then we don't tell them, no, 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 we're really serious, it's important yeah. that you go to bed, then we're just defeating ourselves and that makes our children nervous and making your children nervous makes them bis- misbehave. And it all sort of mushrooms out from there. Yeah. You know, it sounds like there's a corollary to this rule, which might be, or to the rule of make the rules. Uh-huh. Don't make too many of them. Because it seems like so if you've got endless numbers of rules, and I've seen families that have that, just we have the rule about this and this and this and this, it just seems completely overwhelming. You so know, if you have two or three like you're talking about, you can live with that. Exactly. And what happens is, you know, I think you're right. I, I guess I would just call it rule fatigue. It's like the the problem with having too many rules is you have the job of enforcing them. And, I, you know, I, I got to tell you, I'm too lazy to enforce all the rules. I like the big picture. I'm not, you know, the more complicated you make this process, the harder you make it on yourself. If you continue to point the ship in the direction you want to go, it will get to where you want it to go without your having to always run up and check every little piece of the, you know, whether the water's going under it properly and all those things. It, you're 100% right. Too many rules is hard to enforce. And when you have too many rules that you can't enforce, you don't look like you know what you're doing. You're back to being the cab driver who's turning around to see if your seatbelt's on, who's worried about whether the windows are up all the way, who's telling you that the left front tire needed to be repaired. And all of a sudden, that ride in the back of the cab becomes this very complicated thing instead of you just guiding the cab in the direction you want to go. So is there a conversation that you have with the kids that so they, they know, I'm, I'm guessing, you probably have told them directly that there are these rules in the family, but different situations are going to come up that maybe would require a rule. So what do you call that? Um, you know, a lot of rules are sort of courtesy-based, and there's, a, there's a, um, a thing I say in the book about a time that one of my sons uh, gave me a little lip about the fact that we had some friends coming over, and I said, you know, they're coming over, their daughter is about your age, I would like you to be nice to her. So is that a rule? I would like you to be nice to this visiting little girl. And he said, well, you know, those people are your friends, they're not my friends. And so I took him away from his group of 12-year-old buddies, and I said, you know, if what's important to me isn't important to you, then what's important to you isn't going to be important to me. And right now, you need me a lot more than I need you. You need me to drive you to your Little League practice. You need me to go help you take care of your science project. So I think you should help me out here. And he just said, okay, let's go say hello to our friends. It was like, I think when you make a rule or you have a rule, I think it's really important to explain to your child why you have that rule and what it's about because it gives them, first, you're respecting them. You're telling them that they're important enough to have an explanation. And the next thing that's happening is they can internalize your logic and understand, oh, I'm doing this because it's safer for me. And, and so we pretty much, you know, there was a rule that was based on California state law. If you're 16 years old and you have your driver's license, you can't drive another kid in the car until, you know, you're 17. And our daughter was 16 a couple of years ago, and a boy in her class got his license, and he called her and said, come on, let's go get some ice cream. And she said, no, I'm, I can't go with you. My parents won't let me go. And he said, why not? And she said, well, aside from the fact that it's against the law, it's not safe. So she understood both factors. Mm-hmm. And then she yeah. pulled out the trump That's card. very sophisticated. Is, well, this is the best part because she's female. She said, but you could bring me some ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. 
you know, he brought her ice cream, and she had a friend with her, and she said to her friend, why did you ride in the car with Jordan? And her friend said, well, you know, because I wanted to. And she said, well, you know, didn't your mom tell you you couldn't? And she said, my mom doesn't love me as much as your mom loves you. Ooh. That's pretty amazing for 16-year-olds to be communicating on that level and understanding the importance of having someone watching your back. And the older your kids get, the more you're watching their back and the less you're, like, you know, clearing a pathway in front of them. So Yeah, you know, Richard, I want to make sure that we get to a couple sure. more of these things. We're, we're almost through the list, but there's R of SMART, S-M-A-R-T, yeah. respect yourself and teach in all things. Right. So talk a little bit about those. I mean, the, the respect yourself part, I think, is, is interesting. Well, it's crucial. You know, when I see a parent who lets their child talk back to them or says shut up to them, I, I get incredibly uncomfortable, and I think that that comes back to the cab driver because I'm in that cab, and that kid is, like, totally in control. And the fact is that if, you know, you have a 5-year-old a or a 12-year-old in your cab and they're telling you how to drive, then that cab's going to just run off the road. And we need to uh, respect ourselves enough to understand that my life experience that, that I had before I had you enter my life, my world, is of value, and that value deserves your respect. And, you know, you can't demand respect, but that's why the book has in it a system to help define what are your values so that you have some understanding of what you're bringing to the game when you're raising your kid. And, and it's kind of like a martial art, you know. You do martial arts because, not because you use them every day, but because if there's an extreme circumstance, you want to remain calm and you want to know what you have to do to defend yourself. Well, with parenting, if you sit down and you examine your values and you think about what your biggest picture items are, then when little stuff comes at you, you know exactly what to do about it and you don't panic and you don't cede responsibility to your children and you don't run away from your responsibility to say, this is wrong, I need you to do X. And then T, which is teach in all things, is just the result of having noticed, as we've already discussed, that everything you do is teaching a lesson. And every, just in even the most subtle ways. And sometimes you have to sit down and try and figure out, what's the lesson I'm teaching here? When my kid comes home from school and says they want to quit the team, what lesson am I teaching if I allow them to quit the team? What lesson am I teaching if I don't allow them to quit the team? What is the big message that's being transmitted? Well, also the way that you're teaching as well, without without turning everything into an an object lesson that's painfully obvious, but... Yeah, subtly getting the messages across is far better than constantly sitting them down and saying, this is how you do it. Well, and I was, a, you know, I was a kid who people who, who my parents sat down a lot to try and sort of explain things to me. And I, I just had to look backwards and say, how did I learn things? What, what really sunk in for me? And that's what came out in this book was what really sunk in. Was the things that I learned from them behaviorally and emotionally? Um, and so those are the things I tried to apply to my kids. And as we discussed, I tried to keep it as simple as possible in our house. And, and that's like drama. You can just get right past drama, you know, as far as saying, look, wh- what do you really care about? Is this person being nice to you? Yeah. Are these people nice? Because if they're not, that's not, that's not in our family value. You know, and we came down to this is not how our family does things. 
this may be how the world does it, but in our family, you know, you don't get a car when you're 16 years old. Those other people might do that, but there are plenty of people who don't, and we're a family that doesn't do that. Richard Greenberg is the author of Raising Children That Other People Like to Be Around, Five Common Sense Musts from a Father's Point of View. And speaking of common sense, your blog is Common Sense Dad. Is that right? Yes, it is. Okay. Richard, thanks very much. Thank you, Armin. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and and it's time for another Parents at Play column. And I've got Sam Fuse on the line, and she's going to tell us a little bit about something that I honestly, I wish that I were more up on these kinds of things about video games. But your family is. I remember being in your house for for, uh, an evening a couple of years ago and seeing your husband and your son playing games that were just unbelievable. And So talk to us about video games. Yeah, my husband is a huge gamer. I married into geek, um, and not being one myself, I don't always know what's going on. And he speaks gamer to me at at points, and I'm just like, yeah, that's fantastic, sweetie. Um, But my son and my husband do need to have their bonding time, and now that he's getting a little older, um, they can can play some child-friendly games. And... If you have a second controller, that's fantastic. If you don't, go get one. And <laughs> you you can play some of these games, though, by handing the controller back and forth, right? You can, but, but it's it not doesn't give you the same interaction level. Yeah. And you spend a lot of time waiting for the other person, which is fine if you have a very small child. You can give them, like, a dead controller, which my husband used to do when my son was very small, because they think they're doing everything and they're not doing a thing. Um but, you know, once they hit, like, you know, four or five, they're like, this is not doing anything. I, I want to make my guy jump. So buying a second controller, they're not that expensive. And if price is, like, a serious issue, you can always grab one off of eBay or something like that. Yeah. Second controller, big deal. Um, so invest. Um, if, if you're a gamer and you have a child, you're going to want the second controller. You're going to want to spend the time with your with your child, and, and a lot of people do bond over that. Now, I'm not recommending plugging your child in all day. I'm oh, not no. recommending going out and buying Grand Theft Auto and playing it with your six-year-old. Um, use your brain and also use the guidelines that are posted directly on the games. If you are still confused, you can ask somebody in the store to help you choose an age-appropriate game, or you can go to the website, and it will further assist you. Um, but the ones we're discussing today are all appropriate for parents to play with their children. Okay. So tell us about some of those. The first one was Rayman Legends. Yeah. Rayman is kind of a demented-looking rabbit, Um, and Rayman Legends is a follow-up to Rayman Origins. And the rabbit-type thing looks a little bit strange, but he's not a mean rabbit or anything like that, and he's not a scary-looking rabbit. Um. It's a 2D game, and the characters are able to hop back and forth and uh, from area to area. And it's very easy to play with other children. Um, it's an easy-to-play but sort of intricate and hard-to-master game, um, not just for the child but for the parent as well. So it's not a game you're going to spend money on, put in your system, and be done with in a day. This is something you guys are going to be able to play for a while, and 
really spend some time with together and, and learn as you go from level to level. And you have to play together. You have to work together if the two of you want to progress to the next level. Okay. That it's sounds It's also fun. kind of funny because at the yeah. end of the levels, Rayman dances. So. <laughs> Take take the edge off of all that violence, I suppose. Yeah. Well, there's there's no violence. There's no violence. It's it's not a violent like you know slasher game. It's 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 a silly, yeah, it's funny, game. more family oriented. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I would never recommend any parent play a violent video game with their child. Okay. Um, the uh, next one is even there's like zero crazy going on in this next one. It's uh, Hot Wheels World's Best Driver. You can get it on pretty much any game system that you have. And um, basically, you start off by selecting a car, selecting a team, and you and your child can each customize a car. Um, you can actually feel some of the differences in the way the car is handled depending on what model that you've chosen. And if you are in multiplayer mode, you can take turns with the controller, um, which will seriously frustrate your children at, at some point. If you have a child that's very impatient or that just doesn't want to wait, you're going to have a hard time with that particular aspect of the game. But um, the rest of it is, is a really easy and fun game, and it also kind of works with your hand-eye coordination, which is good for pretty much everybody. Oh, yeah, that's one of the best things about you know the games that I do play with my, with my daughter or anything on Xbox or Wii, that you really do have to work on these things, and, and there's a reason why a lot of the military for the various branches of the military use video games to train soldiers because it's that hand-eye coordination that becomes very very valuable later on yeah i apparently am lacking hand-eye coordination because i like to drive into walls a lot it's my favorite <laughs> with, with your real car well i try not to do it with my real car i'm a pretty decent driver when you know i have my license with me it's when they give me that controller that i get a little lost so what about the turbo game yeah, Turbo's great. That was the next one I was just going to point out to you. Again, great game for, for young children. No violence, absolutely no violence involved. Um, and it, it's based on characters from the movie Turbo. It's a stunt-based game. Um, think of, like, skateboarding games or, or the X games. Um, some of the levels involve, uh, like, Turbo. Turbo's a little snail that doesn't want to go slow. He wants to go fast. So Turbo wants to get through everything as quickly as he can, and he doesn't like people who aren't moving quickly, and he wants to be basically a race car driver. So some of the things Turbo needs to do in one level, for example, was he was in a beauty parlor, and he needed to go up these big chairs and jump over the nail polish bottles. And this all sounds very simple, but if you're not in the exact right position, he's just going to keep flipping backwards, and he gets knocked over. and. Oh. He can't reach the next level, and he can't level up and things like that. So it does take skill and practice, but it's a very easy game. It's a funny game. The characters sound just like they do in the movie, and the kids will really enjoy it because, you know, Turbo is a, a movie that just recently came out, and it's adorable. So you can read some more reviews of video games, family video games, at parentsatplay.com, and you can read all sorts of reviews of lots and lots of other things, too. For Samantha Fuse, I'm Armin Brock. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. 
Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello and welcome back to the second part of today's Positive Parenting for Military Families show on AFN. I'm Armin Brott. Those of you who have been listening to the show for a while know, of course, that I've got three daughters. I talk about them all the time. And so anything having to do with girls is especially interesting for me. So you can probably imagine how intrigued I was when I read the following passage, which is written by Tim Jordan, who's going to be our guest in today's show. There's been a tremendous amount of attention paid to the rising levels of depression, anxiety, cutting, and relationship aggression in girls over the past 50 years. But what if these issues aren't the real problem? What if adolescent girls don't have poor self-esteem? What if we've got it all wrong? What if we have missed the forest for the trees? Again, those are the words of Tim Jordan, who's got more than 30 years of working with girls. Tim's going to shine a light on what's really going on with girls as they undergo their normal transformation from girl to woman during adolescence. Tim's going to tell us about what goes on in some of the retreats and camps that he runs for girls, and he's going to help us to become aware of the needs girls have in areas like emotions, friendship struggles, self-quieting, finding their passions, body image, and stress. And best of all, he's going to show us how we, as moms and dads, can best support our daughters during this crucial stage of their development. Everything you've ever wanted to know about girls and a lot more is coming up in today's show, and we're going to jump right into it when Positive Parenting for Military Families continues after this. Looking for the best all-you-can-eat buffet for only $1.99? Come to Big Ed's Chow House. But if you're looking for Big Ed, don't come to Big Ed's Chow House. Big Ed passed away last week at 47, leaving his wife and children struck down in his prime by the same disease that got his father. So he won't be around for his family. And sadly, it could have been detected early with a simple test. But Big Ed didn't get it. Have you gotten the medical test you need? For a list of tests every man should have, go to AHRQ.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Dr. Tim Jordan, who's the author of Sleeping Beauties, Awakened Women, Guiding the Transformation of Adolescent Girls. Tim, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. It's a mouthful, isn't it? It certainly is. I want to start off with something that I read as part of the introduction, but I want to read again because I really think it's so important to setting the stage for our whole discussion. There has been a tremendous amount of attention paid to the rising levels of depression, anxiety, cutting, and relationship aggression in girls over the past 50 years. But what if these issues aren't the real problem? What if adolescent girls don't have poor self-esteem? What if we've got it all wrong? What if we have missed the forest for the trees? That is really intriguing. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, I just, I just ran a retreat for some high school girls, and I've, I've run camps for middle school and high school girls. And what I found is that when, I get, when you get them in a nice, nurturing, safe environment, they bloom. They do fine. Uh, we've, been, we've been hearing from, from authors uh, starting in the, probably in the 70s 
that said that is when girls hit about the middle school age that they would lose their self-esteem and then not get them back until after high school and or if maybe ever. And I think what I find is is that their self-esteem are fine. It's the environment that they're in. So if you, if you see them in the hallway of a middle school where there's all kinds of drama going on and insecurities and mean girl stuff and all that kind of thing, it's no different than an adult being in a toxic work environment. You're not going to be your best, and you're going to look a little insecure. You're not going to have the safety to, to have a voice and to speak up and you know be authentic and be yourself. When kids get a chance to be in a youth group or a place like my retreats and camps, they look just fine. So, I, and I think there are girls today. You know, the, the statistics does show that that there are more girls who are depressed and anxious and cutting and have eating disorders and that yeah. sort of thing. But to me, as I explain in the book, I think those are symptoms of a really important, crucial developmental stage that they're going through, you know, i.e. adolescence. Right. Well, let, let's talk about the environment, for example, because I'm, I'm kind of curious. If you're doing a retreat for girls or a camp for girls, you're still going to have the girls there. Are, are you somehow eliminating the bad girl, the mean girl, the, the pressure that the, the girls are putting on each other just by having the boys not there? No, the boys not there takes away that variable, which is impressing them and, you know, trying to suck up to them and, you know, trying to be attractive and all. But here's the thing. We do, we do an exercise where we, we tell the girls, we put a rope down in the middle of the room. We say, cross the line if you have ever been teased. Cross the line if you've ever been made fun of. Cross the line if you've ever been excluded. And in a group of, say, 20 or 25 girls, almost all, if not all, will cross the line. If we then ask them, cross the line, if you have teased somebody, if you have left somebody out, if you have spread rumors about somebody, guess what? They all cross the line. So they have an awareness that it's it's not just the two way street alpha yeah. queen bee kind of girls who do it. They've all had a, a piece of the action, if you will. I think some girls do it more than others. But I think when you get them together and you create the safety and they start to share their stories and they start to understand each other at deeper levels, that breaks through the mischief. And then all of a sudden they, they care about each other. And then when you care about somebody, then you, you treat them differently. Let's talk a little bit more about these retreats. What goes on there, and how do you select the girls who are going to be there? But they, they select us. You know, I do a lot of speaking. I, I do a lot of media work. I do a lot of writing. And so and I've been doing the retreats for 24 years, so we also have a lot of word of mouth. But we even get kids who come from out of state because I give a lot of talks out of state. And so they kind of select us. We're not looking for bright girls. We're not looking for girls with issues. We're not looking for student council presence. We're looking for girls. So we just throw them together. And we do, you know, we do exercises and games to kind of, you know, get them to sort of relax and all. But it's the sharing that it's the sharing piece that they like. We sit them on the carpet, on the floor, and we do exercises to help them become a little bit more honest, like the crossing the line thing, for instance. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what I found with girls over the last 24 years is all you have to do is get them started, and they just go. They love to talk. They love to share their stories. They love to hear other stories of other girls because it tells them I'm not alone, I'm not crazy, and it's okay to feel the way I'm feeling. And that's a, that's a really huge piece for them. Is there a self-selection issue here that you're going to have, a, a, I guess, a group of girls who are going to be less likely to be the queen bees or the, the mean girls because they, they just wouldn't so, want to go we, to we something like really that? really powerful girls who come. You know, to me, the queen bees aren't—I you know, don't even use the word—I said mean girls earlier, so I guess I yeah. do say it sometimes, but I don't like to use that label because most of the girls I see in, in grade school, middle school, high school who are the quote-unquote queen bees— what I find is a lot of them are just really powerful girls, and they misuse their power. And schools are not giving girls chances to sit down and talk things through. They're not giving girls 
the skills to sit down and, and talk about their conflicts directly. That's a huge issue for girls. Mm-hmm. It's having the courage. If someone says something that you don't like or you hear that someone's talking about you, what we would, what we would want them to do is to go to that person directly and say, hey, I don't, really, I don't appreciate the way you're treating me, to, to work it out and move on. What they do instead is, because they're so afraid if they confront that girl, number one, she'll be angry, and girls don't want anybody to be mad at them. She also might end up not wanting to be their friend anymore, or not only will she not want to be their friend, but she'll take a whole other group of five girls, and then all of a sudden you're alone. Huh. And to be alone for a girl is death. And so, and so they need they need skills to learn how to handle their conflicts directly. Mm-hmm. They also need practice. I'm, I'm going next week I, to work with a, a, a group of girls at a school. These are sixth grade girls. And the school called because this is a really tough class, apparently. And I met with six of the girls last week to see what they wanted. And uh, we're, so we're going to meet with, with this group, my wife and I, next week. And I, I guarantee you, when we, we sit them on the floor, and, we, and you know, we're going to be there probably, I hope, eight times over the next two or three months. When we, when we teach them the skills to resolve conflicts and we get someone to come in the center to, to, you know, to talk through a real issue, nine times out of ten they're talking about things that happened years ago, months and years ago, that they never handled. The feelings are still there. The feelings are festered. They've been avoiding each other. It creates more drama. So when they just handle it and the whole group sees that it works, nobody's in trouble, they're hugging at the end, there may be tears sometimes, the girls line up because they want to handle stuff. They just need opportunities. Yeah. Now, Tim, I want to ask you something that may be a little odd, but you're a guy, uh-huh. and I, I know from experience from teaching expectant fathers that having a woman in the room changes the dynamic completely. Do you think that having you in the room running these workshops as the probably the only guy in the room, does that limit the amount of sharing and, and openness that the girls will have, or are you sufficiently older than them or sufficiently neutral that they don't really see you as as some intrusion i don't think that they do because i mean i've worked with girls for so long and people always ask well, why are you working so, so much with girls and i i tell them first of all um because of need like we in the last 15 years my wife and i have had one phone call with a school calling us just saying we're having trouble with this group of boys you know the other 99 times it's been girls 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 so there's a need out there the same way with my with my counseling practice also, I tell them that I grew up, I had two older brothers growing up and five younger sisters. And so the, the youngest two especially, I, I helped to take care of. I, I changed diapers. I mean, I was like their second dad kind of. So I've been, I think I learned how to be comfortable with girls. And I, I think that I'm, I'm safe. I've learned how to do that. Um, and I, I don't think it holds them back. I, maybe it does, but I think I've, the feedback I get all the time is I think that they, the girls are just fine with it. And my wife does, um, teaches the, the school things with me. And when I run retreats, um, it's not always my wife and maybe some other camp counselors, you know, who are girls, girls I eat in high school, college, or women. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think so. And they, I think they like having that presence, too. It's a different energy. I think it balances out something also. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about some of the challenges that, that are facing girls today. Are they different than they used to be? I mean, you said that there, there are instances where there, that there's more. There's more cutting. There's more depression in some cases. But... Are girls different today than they were when you know, twenty years ago? Their mothers for a generation. No, I don't. I don't think girls are different. But I think I, I read a lot of history because I, I like history, and I think when you look at, at child rearing practices, if you look at, at uh, how we've looked at girls, how we've looked at girls and their their bodies and their appearance, et cetera, et cetera, over the years, what what changes is what's going on around them. 
the cultural messages of the time, the expectations, the standards. And I think one of the things that is different in the last 10, 15 or so years is that there's, there's been way more pressure put on girls. And what I mean by the pressure, and, and it comes from a lot of places, one of them is there's an expectation today that girls are supposed to be really, really good at all the traditional male energy kind of things. So they're supposed to be aggressive and driven, and they're supposed to be um, willing to step on people to get to the top, um, and they're supposed to be at the top of their class, and they're supposed to be getting, you know, straight A's and going to the top colleges. Those, those are traditionally more the boy things, you know, if you look back in history. But they're also still expected to be really good at the traditional female things. So they're supposed to be thin and pretty and hot and sexy, and they're supposed to be um, verbal, and they're supposed to be good with friendships, and they're supposed to be nurturing and kind and all those kinds of things. Tim Jordan is the author of Sleeping Beauties, Awakened Women. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue talking with Tim. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Tim Jordan, who's the author of Sleeping Beauties, Awakened Women, Guiding the Transformation of Adolescent Girls. We were just talking before the break about differences between girls today and a generation or so ago, and you're arguing that there really isn't with the girls, but that there is with the environment that they're in. Yes, and, and the pressures on them from the outside. The pressures to be good at traditional boy things, the pressures to be good at traditional girl things, to be good girls, to... There's a ton of mixed messages out there about girls, plus all the sexualization messages and growing up early, their bodies change earlier, they go through puberty earlier. There's a whole bunch. That stuff is different. And I think because girls are so busy and they're so distracted with all those activities and their technologies, there's so little time for girls to sort of have quiet time and to think and to, and to, and to reflect and to draw and to journal and to do the things that would help them to kind of make sense of what's going on. They just plow ahead. All right. We've been talking a little bit about the challenges. Let's talk about the brain and the hormones and what's going on with all that stuff. How is the brain affecting? I'm I'm going to a a high school uh, this coming week. I've I've been going to the school for 16 years and talking to senior classes. I've been to three classes so far. I'm going next week. And and these are seniors in high school. And part of what I talk about is boys. It's it's an all-girls school. I talk about relationships and finding your soulmate. I give a talk about about their hormones, their female brain wiring, um, their cycles. And what's fascinating is these are 18-year-old young women, and they've never heard this stuff before. I don't know what they're teaching these girls in their health classes in fifth, sixth, eighth, whatever grade, but they, they sit there with open mouths. And all I'm talking about is, is how girls are wired to connect, girls are wired to communicate, girls are wired to have emotional sensitivity. I talk about the, the impact of estrogen and, you know, when they start going through puberty and what that does, I talk about the, the influence of their hormones uh, in the four weeks of their cycle. Girls need that kind of information to understand what's going on in their bodies. Well, doesn't that seem a little bit odd to them coming from a guy? I mean, even though you are a pediatrician, it's still kind of personal. I'm a pediatrician. I'm a, my subspecialty is development, developmental and behavioral pediatrics. So I'm, I function more as a counselor now, but that's my background. I think, I think maybe, I'm sure, I don't know if I'm sure, I'm guessing at first when I start talking about those kind of things, they might think what's going on. But but they love the information, and I think I, I think I give it to them in a way that's easy to digest. They ask, they ask questions. We have lots of back and forth. They're laughing. They're going, oh, oh my God, no wonder. They love it. They just need some information and some guidance. 
And you talk in the book about stories and writing and journaling. Expand yep. on that a little bit. What's what's how important is that, and why is it so important? Well, they need outlets. They need outlets for their their emotions. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is how girls today, a lot of times by middle and high school, are disconnected from their emotions. If I ask them how they're feeling about really important life events that have happened, a lot of them can't tell me what the emotion is. They've been so busy that they haven't had a chance to slow down and check in, and that's a hugely important skill. So things like journaling or drawing or playing music or writing songs or writing poetry or you know, or dancing or singing, those are things that can quiet them, slow them down, and also get them to sort of express things in healthy ways. Because if they don't, what happens is, is those feelings build up, the pressures build up, and then what you end up seeing is cutting and anxiety and depression and eating disorders. That, to me, is, is those symptoms like you talked about at the very beginning. To me, it's just emotions and pressures shoved underground, and they come back up in inappropriate ways because they're not spending enough time appropriately expressing them. And is that related to what you call in the book stinking thinking? That's part of it. You know, part of the, of the girls' wiring I tell them about is that when girls feel things, girls and our women, the emotional centers in their brain light up, and then the energy of the brain goes to two other places. One of them is the verbal centers. So when girls and our women are feeling things, they want to talk about it. And the other place is their prefrontal cortex, and it's a part of their brain that likes to think, think about things and think about things and think about things. One of the biggest issues with the girls this weekend was what they called overthinking. It's the same thing. It's, you know, I call it rumination, chewing on thoughts over and over and over again. And uh, so they need, they, need to help, they need help learning how to identify and become aware of when they're going down that path and then have some skills to learn how to switch it. Are there differences, do you think, between mother-daughter relationship and father-daughter relationships? Really? Yes. Um, how I are think, they different? I, mean, I think there's, if you're talking just about general closeness, no. If you're talking about the ways that moms and our dads influence and the way they connect, I think in general, yes, there are lots of differences, and, and really fun and important ones. You know, I, th I think you know, when we're talking about dads, because you're a dad, um, I think that things like, you know, just playing rough, you know, rough and tumble kind of play, um, the way that dads tease and, and kind of, you know, poke fun and kind of prod and, and, you know, banter with their daughters, those are things that kind of toughen girls up a little bit. It in in a good way, though, right? Personally. Oh, I'm sorry. In a good way, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. not saying, like, harsh criticism. I'm talking about right. fun, you know, fun kind of teasing. But it, does, it, makes, it helps girls learn to not take every little word so seriously. Um, there's, there's, there is research that shows that when dads are involved in those kinds of ways with their daughters, their girls end up being more independent, more confident. They have better, self, they have better sense of humor, all good things. All right, so let's let's continue on, I guess, in some of these things. I want to get into a little bit of the practical here uh -huh. about what we as parents can do. And I, you, you know I'm a dad. I've got three daughters, so these things are, well, are top of mind for me in a lot of ways. But I, I agree with you. I mean, that, that there's, I'm different. I, I treat them differently than their mother treats them. Yeah. But they're equally important. I think that's a, a comment that you're making as well. But I think it's it's important for guys to know that they don't need to treat their daughters necessarily any less, I don't mean harshly exactly, but net less physically than right. their sons. They, they, and a lot of guys, I mean, I know some of these guys that are, are reluctant to throw their daughters around when they're, when they're young and wrestle with them and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, that's, that's not, too bad. Not necessary, right? Yeah. And two other things I think are, are important gifts that dads give their daughters. One of them is, and sons, I guess, I think dads are a little bit more direct with their discipline. I don't mean yelling. I don't mean being 
you know, authoritative. I just mean a little bit more matter of fact. Um, and I think moms in general, in general, kind of spend more time with their kids. Moms look, or have a little bit more of that nurturing kind of female energy. They can almost anticipate what their kids are thinking, right? Um, but in, in out in the real world, when, when their kids grow up and their daughters go out in the real world, their employers, their bosses, are not going to anticipate their every need and whim. They're going to learn to take feedback and criticism, and handle it, you know, appropriately. So I think dads prepare girls in that way. And also, really important is is if dads can focus on their daughter's non-physical qualities. There's so much energy out in the world about that you are how you look. There's so much energy on girls where you're defined by your appearance, your looks, your your weight, your body. And so if dads can spend way more time, because I think in our culture it's just built in. We see little girls who go, oh, she's so cute, oh, that outfit's so darling. Instead of focusing on things like character, values, perseverance, uh, problem-solving kind of strategies, tenacity, mm-hmm. uh, resilience, integrity. Those are way more important for girls in the long run. So well, I think that's a great role for dads to play, to let the girls know you're way more than your looks. Well, how do you deal with a specific issue as a dad? I'm kind of curious. If you have a girl who's 10 or 11 years old and, and insists that she's fat when she is not even remotely close to being fat, or who at a at a restaurant orders a diet drink when she doesn't need to be having a diet drink, what about that? What do, what do we do as guys? Can we say, "Oh, come on," or what's what's the what's well, the strategy for I'd dealing be curious. with this? And so I would say, "Well, wow, that's interesting. I don't see you as being overweight, but it sounds like you feel like you are. What? Why do you think that?" I would act dumb. I'd act curious, and I, I would want them to be able to talk about where they heard that. I.e., are they looking at magazines? I.e., are they comparing themselves too much to their friends? Which both those things are probably true. Um, sometimes it's also their mother's comments. I mean, their moms are a huge influence there. I've run some mother-daughter retreats um, all over the United States and also in Europe, and we ask the moms questions. We, we ask them a question with their, with, their, with their middle school daughters with them and say, how many of you moms talk badly about your body in front of your daughters? And most of the moms say, oh, no, I'm very careful. I know that's not a good thing. And we say, okay, girls, how many of you have heard your mom say something negative? They all raise their hands. And about so their own body. Modeling's important. I think listening to them, um, giving them a voice, giving them places to talk about the pressures about how they're supposed to look, the standards put, you know, put out there. Also, teaching girls to be media and image savvy. Uh, we do that exercise with girls a lot. We have them, you know, there's, there's some Dove videos. Dove.com has some fun videos that shows um, girls being made up. It shows the difference between the real girl and the, the magazine cover girl. So the girls can start to learn that those images are not real. So there's a lot of things we can do to help them become more educated and more media and image savvy. Tim Jordan is the author of Sleeping Beauty's Awakened Women, Guiding the Transformation of Adolescent Girls. Tim, thanks for joining us. Great to You're have welcome. you. welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.